0: when I had to appear before the Justice Department screening committee when I was going through the process they have a screening committee there but not a ten local of these folks who are sitting around the table and they said that every time they ask a judge you know do you always want to be a judge and the answer get very is ever since I was indicted, this I want to be a judge I didn't give that
1: answer. Welcome to The Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. People often ask me how I find my guests for the SIDCAST. After all, they come from so many different walks of life, from sports to politics to academia to music and other forms of entertainment and all sorts of other places. Well, the answer is that I have a really big network. You know, I'm a professor at Dartmouth and also an alum at uh, London School of Economics and Columbia University. It turns out that all sorts of interesting people have come through these schools. Other times I hear about someone really uh, interesting, you know, a MacArthur genius grant winner like Mary Halverson, who's in the vanguard of experimental jazz music and a really great conversation with her earlier in season two. Or Alice Chun, the entrepreneur who was moved to create a business to help bring light to Haitians after the 2010 earthquake. Then there are listener and friend suggestions, and I really do enjoy getting those suggestions from listeners and friends. That got me to Sam Kennedy, the CEO of the Boston Red Sox, and very recently, Darius Mosafarian, the cardiologist and the dean of the Tufts Nutrition School, talking about a topic I think we all care a lot about, how to live longer and better. Well, this episode of the SIDCAST also came to me from my friend Les Choset. Les lives down in Florida with his wife, Roberta, and he would always tell me about his cousin, this larger-than-life person who turned out to be a judge in New York City and an author, and someone who seemed to make friends everywhere he went, and as a result, had and continues to have many adventures. I connected with Judge Fred Block this past winter when I was down in Florida. And he was ready to meet me right away and start talking, but it turned out that wasn't quite possible. Then COVID, of course, derailed all travel. So I only recently caught up with Judge Block when he was in Greece, of all places, to record this podcast. Who is he? Well, Judge Fred Block was nominated by President Bill Clinton to a seat on the United States District Court for the Eastern District of New York, think Brooklyn, in 1994. Over the course of his career as a judge, he has been involved in all sorts of famous trials. He sentenced Gambino crime family boss, Peter Gotti, to almost 10 years in prison for money laundering and racketeering. And he was involved with a variety of different cases that had to do with terrorism. And he also had one of the first cases post the September 11 attacks that addressed whether ethnicity may be used to establish criminal propensity or likelihood under the Fourth Amendment in 2015. He got involved with this long, long dispute over the printing of rabbi materials <laughs> in Brooklyn. And this was part of this mega lawsuit that involved members of the Orthodox Jewish Chabad group. And so it's pretty diverse and all over the map and kind of classic Brooklyn. He was involved in a bunch of cases that had to do with sentencing. There was one that was very famous, USA versus Nesbitt. And this was in 2016. And while the defendant was found guilty of importing and possessing cocaine with the intent to distribute that was never disputed. He gave her a relatively light sentence that got a lot of publicity. And in his sentencing memorandum, he talks about, quote unquote, collateral consequences which really means that the price tag that convicted felons pay in their life that goes beyond the time they serve in prison. And in terms of that topic has become a very big topic in light of the Black Lives Matter movement. And, you know, if you've read the new Jim Crow about incarceration of mostly African American young men, and the unequal treatment that has occurred under the law for a long period of time, This concept of collateral consequences and what you actually give up and pay, the penalty you pay for a crime is enormous. And obviously, this is a controversial topic, because if you do something wrong, it's perfectly normal and legitimate to be punished for it. But what is an appropriate punishment? And that's a tricky question. And Judge Block has been involved with that. In fact, he's actually written three different books. He wrote one called Disrobed, An Inside Look at the Life and Work of a Federal Trial Judge, And that's when he kind of walks through some of the most controversial cases, a couple of which I just mentioned that he presided over, and they dealt with, you know, death penalty and racketeering, gun laws, drug laws, discrimination, race, and terrorism, among many other things as well. His most recent book was in 2019, so very recently, called Crimes and Punishments. And it gets at this point I was just alluding to earlier, which is that the government has no power greater than to take away a person's freedom or even their life. And we trust judges to balance justice and mercy to arrive at an appropriate sentence when a person has been convicted of a crime. But we don't really see what's going on in the judge's brain. They provide a justification typically based on law, but what's really going on? What's the process that the judge goes through in trying to figure out what that appropriate sentence could be? In this book, Judge Block talks about that process and how he's thought about it in his own life and his own work and how he tries to and has tried to think about not just justice and what's required under the law, but what's appropriate for a person and what impact that'll have on that person as well. All this is actually really the tip of the iceberg because Judge Block has something interesting to say about, well, about almost everything, as you're about to hear as we tune into my conversation on the SITCAST with Judge Fred Block. Welcome to the Sidcast. This is Sid Finkelstein. Today I am talking to Judge Frederick Block. Hello, Judge.
0: Hello, Sydney. How are you today?
1: Very good. Where are you calling in from? I am
0: speaking to you now from Greece, and there's a seven hour time difference between the two of us. I think right now it's about five o'clock Greece time, and it's
1: 10 o'clock. 5:30. Now, how did you, I mean, you're American. How did you get to Greece? I thought that the Greeks don't want any of us Americans heading out there.
0: Well, you know, a few years ago, I married a Greek-American. I had no idea we would be living with the coronavirus right now. And the tradition is that when you marry a Greek woman, they give you a dowry, usually a couple of cows, a few goats, a few sheep. I didn't know she
1: was going to give you this beautiful villa in Greece, uh, but oh. I'm fortunate to be here, yeah. That's a pretty good deal. And you've had and continue to have a fantastic career. You're still a practicing judge, right? I am. In New York City, what level of court is it for folks to know?
0: So I'm a federal district judge in the Brooklyn Federal Courthouse. And New York City has two major courthouses that cover the megalopolis. They're the Eastern District of New York and the Southern District of New York. The Southern District of New York is Manhattan, the Bronx, Westchester, a few of those other counties up there. And the Eastern District are the other three boroughs, Brooklyn, Queens, Richmond, or Staten Island, plus the two Long Island counties of Massimo and Suffolk. You look at the Eastern, you look at the Southern, we really read, pretty most of the action happens uh, you read about it in the newspapers. And the courthouses are separated by the Brooklyn Bridge. We are absolutely juxtaposed to the Brooklyn Bridge. If you cross the Brooklyn Bridge, you go towards Manhattan. The other side is the, the Southern District Court House.
1: Got it. So, Judge, you were appointed as a judge by Bill Clinton. How does that happen? How does somebody become a judge in the first place? How did not even know about you? Yeah,
0: I got to put a plug in for my book. So, you know, people always ask me that question. And after being on the bench for about 18 or 19 years, I decided to put it down in writing. So at the tender age of 78, I wrote my sort of memoir, and it's called Disrobed. Taken off the road. I was trying to reach out to the general public, and inside I at the life and work of a federal trial judge, and I did that because of the abject lack of knowledge that people have. And I'm talking about generally people, regardless of their educational background, don't have a real good handle on how to answer the question you just asked me. So for sure it's in my book and it really explains the whole process from A to Z, how one becomes a federal court judge and how I became a federal court judge. So it's not the same for everybody. The usual sense that people have is that you have to have a rabbi for lack of a better phrase. And uh, that means you're wired to the White House or to somebody who is going to be in a position to recommend you to the president and get you appointed. And that does happen frequently. Somebody could be the roommate of the senator from New Hampshire. And uh, because of that, you know, you have a relationship and that person becomes a successful lawyer and they maintain that relationship. And there go, that person becomes a judge. It doesn't always work that way. And it is different from state to state. Generally speaking, the person is in the White House, Democrat, Republican, uh, the president recommends all of the federal court judges, and then the uh, judge has to be approved by the Senate, and then that happens, uh, then you become a federal court judge. So how is it that the president gets the name of the person who he's going to recommend so he knows somebody personally or the Senate knows somebody personally and talks to him in my case, in New York for many years, I'm not so sure how it is in New Hampshire or all the other states in the United States, but in New York, we've had a, until recently, a Republican and a Democratic senator. Uh, it goes back to the days of Javits, Moynihan, the uh, motto. Now we have two Democratic senators. But when they had the senatorial dichotomy, One hand, who was highly regarded and respected across the aisle, was able to prevail upon his Republican colleagues to divide up the goodies, so to speak. And whoever was in the White House, if it was a Democrat, then Moynihan would have three out of four recommendations. If it was a Republican, then the Republican counterpart was Javits. Then it was the matter would have three out of four, and it worked very well. And they both believed all of these folks believed in a lack of a better expression, a merit selection process, and they actually had merit selection committees. Uh, Moynihan took his pretty seriously. So you go before their committee if you were asked to come before the committee to be interviewed you get before the committee is a separate story. And then and you get a recommendation to the senator. The senator supported that. He would recommend you to the White House. I came through Monaghan. I came through his Merit Selection Committee. And what was unusual about Monaghan is that he really believed in his Merit Selection Committee. And he took it quite seriously. I never knew him. I had no rabbi. And when I tell people I had no rabbi, they have a hard time believing that because that's really not the normal way in which you get access to the White House, so to speak. So he basically was the one that recommended me to uh, President Clinton at that time. Then I had to go before the Senate Judiciary Committee. I was not controversial then. Maybe I'd be controversial today after 25 years, who knows? Uh, but then I wasn't, and I was, you know, confirmed by the Senate unanimously. So that's basically it in a nutshell. Now I can go on and on and on. There are all sorts of permutations. Are all sorts of other stories out there. There are all sorts of casualties. Uh, you get sometimes caught up in the political process, and you're totally innocent of it, but you're used to support. It. You probably read about a lot of those things. Recently, there's a lot of concern about the uh, politicization of the federal bench. We have strong feelings about that. We really feel that we're obligated to maintain the independence of the bench. People hear about that, the rule of order, all that sort of stuff. It's really dynamic what's happening right now because we feel, judges generally, that uh, there's a, a political agenda out there to compromise the independence of the judiciary. And the current administration, you know, makes no bones about it. They're very happy that they have appointed 200, be maybe 6 or 700 federal judges to turn around the bench to um, adhere to a different philosophy, to embrace a philosophy, to come from the federal society, whatever you want to call it. That's not a healthy thing. So there's really something that's different in the waters today than I think we've had historically in the United States. I'm not very happy about it. I don't think most people are happy about it. It should not be the way it should be. It's as simple as that.
1: And is it more so now than you've ever seen before? Absolutely. McConnell has made it very clear. He
0: wants what you call conservative judges to be on the bench, young people who will be there a long time, who will espouse you know, a particular philosophy, a particular jurisprudence, and he makes no bones about it. Because of that, I can talk about it candidly as well. It's not what happened during Moynihan's administration. It's not what happened in any prior presidential administration. I learned recently, Sid, strangely enough, that Eisenhower felt so strongly about the independence of the federal judiciary. He appointed a Democrat, and the next was a Republican, and the next was maybe an independent. He intentionally mixed it up because he didn't believe that the federal judiciary should be dominated by any one particular ideology or any one particular party. That's not the way it is today. I have to add a caveat because I have sat with some of these folks now. I sit by designation on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is an endangered circuit. Uh, It's one that is looked upon very carefully because it's the largest circuit court. It covers 20% of all the appeals from district courts throughout the country. It's the most profound court in terms of its impact that it has on the federal judiciary. And I've sat with some of the current president's new appointees. They're young. They're bright. They are highly credentialed very intelligent, very decent human beings, very courteous, very polite, people who you can admire enormously. And I can tell you that it's not all doomsday out there. However, having said that, they're young. The last time I sat on the court a few months ago, which was done by remote control because of the virus, one of the judges was 41, the other was 44. Yeah, air their combined ages. I was a year older than both of them. Mm. They were very respectful of me. We got along well. We were very collegiate. I'm in a dissent on one case where we have different philosophies and different attitudes, you might say, in the process of running that dissent right now. We've had two new colleagues on the Eastern District in Brooklyn, highly credentialed, highly qualified. They don't seem to be sort of committed to following a particular ideology. They're happy to have them as new colleagues. So it's a mixed bag. Many of these so called current appointees are very capable, they're very conscientious, and they're doing a good job. There's a number of them that really come with a strong commitment to uh, imposing their will upon the judiciary and not really abiding uh, by what we call, for lack of a better expression, the rule of law. So it's important, I think, for the people who are listening to this podcast to understand that we have a dynamic now that has never happened before in the history of the federal judiciary since the day that John Jay became the first chief justice. And how it's going to all play out, we don't know. But we have 200 young people now who will be there for many years, and that's being done intentionally so that the supposed face and character of the federal judiciary will be reshaped. I don't think it's a good thing. So I gave you a long answer
1: because it's an important question. Yeah. And is there a solution to this problem that you just described? The obvious thing somebody might say is, well, perhaps if Biden becomes the president, then he could play the same type of game as been going on with Trump and try to rebalance, which means it's a never-ending battle that'll go on forever and ever.
0: I mean, that can be done, yes. If you are of that orientation and you're motivated to doing that, and you control the reins of government, which means you have to control the Senate. So if you have a, a Democratic president and a Democratic-controlled Senate, and you have no vacancies, now you're not going to have as many vacancies necessarily because these young people are going to be a bit longer. And It can be done the other way around, there's no question that may be considered to be a Floor flaw in the system, but it's the power of the presidency and the Senate. But yes, it can be abused. I think any of our privileges, any of our functions of
1: government, any of our institutions can be subject to abuse in the wrong hands. The judiciary was established with Article Three of the Constitution, and it's supposed to be one of the three independent arms, but yet you're describing a way in which the game gets fixed.
0: Well, this is what's happened. Sad to say, I'm not, I'm not happy about it. And also, I think that people are just not quite aware of the fact that while the judiciary is an independent branch of government, it's the third branch. The first branch is the executive, the second article, the second branch is the legislative, Third branch is the judiciary. And, you know, our founding fathers and the mothers were really pretty sensitive to wanting to make the judiciary as independent as possible. Now, it's not possible to make it totally independent. Somebody has to fund it. The money comes from Congress. You control the purse strings, you have a lot of control over the uh, reins of government, right? So we're constantly dealing with Congress in terms of budgetary issues, uh, the creation of new judgeships, all that is determined by Congress. The statutes that we have to enforce are created by Congress. The sentences that we have to enforce, mandatory sentences, are created by Congress. So we're independent, yes, conceptually, but certainly not in practice. And was are subject to a lot of pressure from the other branches of government. The executive who has the important power in Congress who has the budgetary power.
1: Right. Let me ask you a philosophical question about judges without a capital J. So the Bible talked about judges and it's in the U.S. Constitution we just talked about and probably some form of a court. With Judges exists in every country in the world, although the rule of law is dramatically different in some places. In sports, there are referees. In the Olympics, there are judges as well. And judgment itself is central to society, to leadership and organizations. Can you imagine any type of society where we don't need as much judgment going on? Is it is it just kind of ridiculous that it's impossible or... Philosophically, because it's not practical, what I'm asking you. And what type of society would we have? What does it say about human beings, about people, that it's such an essential element of every walk of life?
0: Well, you know, that's a question from a Dartmouth professor, you know, and I would expect nothing less. I don't normally get questions like that. <laughs> good. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I'm, not, I'm not a great student of the Bible. Maybe I shouldn't be saying that, you know, but I don't have a clear answer to that question. The concept of judgment does go back to biblical days. There's no question about it. The wisdom of Solomon, we hear that all the time. You have to have the wisdom of Solomon. Well, those are good standards. Those are good objectives and certainly law. Is an essential part of Judaism, Catholicism, all religions, I think, really embrace the rule of law. So you start with that biblical premise, so to speak, and you just have to apply it to what you're dealing with in a particular society, in a particular place in time in history. I think we've done a pretty good job in the United States. You know, the federal judiciary, these people, even those that are appointed by, I don't care who the president is, their surprises are all the time. It never quite turns out that way. But I think we're doing about right we have a merit selection appointment process, and we have an independent judiciary. Those are the two pegs that are fundamental, so that you can render the decision that you think is correct without being concerned about being recalled and kicked out of your juncture. And I think those are the two pillars that really make for what we're being dealing with right now. We're being challenged like ever before to really maintain the independence and the integrity of the judiciary. I think it comes from the Supreme Court. I think Roberts has done a terrific job. I know he's committed to not being kind of a puppet of the legislative or the executive branch of government. And I think he really feels strongly, as do I think most judges, about maintaining the independence and the integrity of the court. But now we're being challenged big, big time. I think we've held up by a large. You look at the decisions, you scratch your head. Well, can you believe that? That's a Reagan appointment and he's making this decision or this is a... Bush appointment or Clinton appointment, I think the public should have a good, healthy feel and respect for what we've done because it is basically a merit selection process. You have to go through a lot of steps in order to be anointed, so to speak. There are judiciary committees, there's bar associations, the FBI checks you out. Uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee, and I think that you have to something next to your name that really gives you some credentials. So I really travel all over the country, and I'm generally impressed with the quality and the commitment of my colleagues, whether they come from Wyoming, North Dakota, Tennessee, Mississippi, New York, Brooklyn, California. These people, by and large, are. Committed people who really do embrace the concept of being the guardians of an independent judiciary. I know it sounds kind of silly to say that in a way, but it surprises me wherever I go. These are pretty highly qualified people. So the system our country has worked out pretty well, and people should feel pretty good about it. And I think if you look at the evidence, as we like to say, as judges, right, that the evidence is pretty daunting how one decision after another has rebuffed things that have happened from the legislative or the executive branch of government recently uh, because they did not square with the rule of law. And you can point to decision after decision in this recent term for the United States Supreme Court, how to surprise people. So I think we're a pretty healthy third branch of government, notwithstanding the efforts to render us nugatory to some extent. I think we're holding it pretty well and hopefully we'll continue. And I have confidence even in these people who are being appointed in this administration that
1: they're educated. So Judge, you mentioned the evidence, and of course you look at the evidence, it's kind of a no-brainer, but... I I read a book this past summer called I Am Pilgrim by Terry Hayes. It's one of these thrillers, you know, terrorism and crime thriller, that's just an easy read that every now and then you need to just do that. And there was a quote in the book that was really interesting by the detective who was the lead character. And he said something like, evidence was the name we gave to what we had, but what about the things we hadn't found? Sometimes the things that were missing were of far greater importance. And so I'm curious about how you react to that quote whether it has any meaning when you get down to you know a court case when you have to people have to provide the evidence you don't know what you don't know but yeah I think it's just kind of interesting because in everyday life we know the questions people don't ask are kind of interesting and of course there's that famous Sherlock Holmes story about Silver Blaze where the dog didn't bark in the night and that was the clue. The dog knew the murderer, and that's why the dog didn't bark. And so it's what was missing. So, what do you think about all that? So, you
0: know, it's kind of a risk if you start speculating and you let that enter into your mindset and you have to make a decision. So, all we have in front of us uh, is the evidence that's presented in an adversarial context. And uh, we can't just fill in the voids because we uh, are curious about why was this presented, how come this, how come that. A lot of times the lawyers are very much aware of not asking certain questions because they are fearful of the answer that they may get it or know the answer they might get. It. So there is a, certainly a concept of, you know, avoidance that every practitioner is possibly aware of and the things you don't want the jurors to know the judge to know. So we're like victims, you might say, at the uh, hands of the litigants. Surely, there are many cases where you wonder, wow, is this lawyer really up to speed? How come the lawyer didn't ask these questions? I would ask those questions. And I'm tempted many times to do that, uh, but we're cautioned not to do that, uh, for not to take the case away from the lawyers. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're not the lawyers, we're the judges. So we sort of are in a position where we're not involved in the searching for the truth. Uh, maybe that's uh, what we should be doing, but it's not really a function. I think that's a cliche that we all often here. But we don't really necessarily search for the truth. We really do be bound to just accept what's presented to us and make our decisions objectively from the evidence that's presented to us. That's the system. That's the way it works. Is it creating injustices at times? Sure. Are there lawyers that are more skilled than others? Sure. You don't have robots sitting in the jury room. You don't have robots trying cases. You don't have robots being judged. It's a human system subject to all the frailties that, you know, the human animal is capable of. which there are money.
1: Have you ever had a case overturned and on appeal? I've had some reversals,
0: but, you know, uh, actually, I haven't had any in a number of years now, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm the best judge on the bench, because we know that some
1: of the great judges have been great dissenters. Right, right. right. The reason I'm asking the question is more about the human side. Like, how do you feel? Because somebody told you in your profession, I think you were wrong in this case, and you thought you were doing the right thing when you made your ruling.
0: Well, you always should feel like you're doing the right thing, of course. Uh, but, you know, sometimes you have differences of opinion. Look, I'm writing a now. And the Ninth Circuit Court, it feels in the case of you, I'm back. that there are three judges uh, that sit on you know, certain panels. The other two obviously don't agree with me. You we know, don't agree with each other. Who's right? Who's wrong? I have a number of cases where I've been a dissenting judge, and uh, obviously I thought I was right, but my colleagues, you know, left there, were wrong. So what really, really, really blows by knowing more than anything else is how one person can make such a difference in a person's life. And I had a recent case where I issued a lengthy dissent. I'm in the minority. It was a circuit court decision. And because of the fact that one judge basically changed her mind, somebody goes to jail for 75 years instead so of being freed from prison, one judge. You look at the Supreme Court, five, four, five, four, One judge. You know, it's responsible for deciding critical issues and that our society is to be governed by. So, you know, we can go on and on with these ponderables. I think that's much more of a searching question with all the respect of searching for the evidence, the uh, whole uncertainty of who that one judge is and the circumstances, the curiosities that really bring us to that position where one judge makes a difference between life and death one judge to make a decision whether it will be weighted over return and on and on and on. That's really what really strikes me as much more relevant and much more a matter of concern than searching for a piece of missing evidence. So of course it's good to have justice, you know, discharge wherever you find it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So did you grow up wanting to uh, practice law, which you did for a long time? I mean, you probably wanted to play baseball for the Yankees or the Dodgers or something.
0: Well, you know, when I had to appear before the Justice Department Screening Committee, when I was going through the process, they have a screening committee there, uh, but not a tenant or local, all these folks who are sitting around the table. And they said that every time they ask a judge, you know, they always want to be a judge. And the answer they get to get the verdict is, ever since I was in diapers, I I didn't give that answer. And, uh, you know, I didn't have any thoughts about that whatsoever. So I, I really, you know, it was more circumstances than really being in control of my faith. I practiced law in a Suffolk County, New York, which uh, when I went there was one of the most Republican-controlled counties in the country, if not the number one. And uh, politically, I mean, I make no bones about it. I was a Democrat, and I still am. That doesn't mean I hate Republicans. That's just the way I am. So no Democrat had ever been appointed to the federal court bench in the history of Suffolk County since the creation of the county in 1684. So I didn't really give myself you know, much of a chance of becoming a federal court judge. Uh, so it wasn't really you know, what treated the way I conducted myself as a lawyer. So I feel very good that uh, I didn't have this attitude. I didn't have this I had to be a judge type of mentality. I and mean, nonetheless, I wound up in a position of We have an opportunity to, you know, make a difference, here and there. So, you know, I I didn't have that traditional attitude since I was a kid. I wanted to be a judge.
1: Right, right. But it's interesting that you said that many people actually answer yes. They actually did think about that, which looking back in my own uh, childhood, I don't know how many kids I knew would have said they wanted to be a judge. It just sounds really odd to me, actually, that you'd want to do something that serious when you're a 10-year-old kid and all you want to do is hang out with your friends. I don't
0: know what they really mean it, but that's what they say.
1: Exactly. That's the difference. <laughs> so you grew up in Queens or Long Island as well, New York was,
0: area? I was born in Brooklyn. And at the age of nine, my father did me a great, great service my mother as well. They moved to Manhattan. And they uh, lived in a wonderful apartment right across the street from the Museum of Natural History. Actually, just opposed to the New York Historical Society. I was really grateful to that. Uh, because I was raised as a New York City kid. You know, this time I went to was in high school. I took the subway every day. I walked through the museum to get to the subway, and I'd at in the Indian canoe that was in the Museum of Natural History every day. And I got an education just looking at the changing exhibits of my osmosis as I was going to school as a kid. So I'm a big, big New York City guy. Then I left New York City to go out to the Midwest to undergraduate school in Indiana. And that was just circumstantial. But in retrospect from where I did, it was really one of the most formative parts of my education because it got me away from the insular attitudes that I'm afraid, you know, were subject to when we live in the big city. Uh, you know, it's the best place in New York, nothing like it, that type of thing. And being exposed to the Midwest and a whole different culture and a whole different environment uh, was really a great education for me. Then I came back to go to law school, and I wound up in Cornell. And uh, that basically was my educational
1: journey yeah. to uh, now, you know, you grew up in New York, you're a lifelong New Yorker. So I have to ask you, what is going to happen? Is New York going to recover from this COVID? Of course, it will at a certain level, but it's just devastating so many industries and so many small businesses. And who's going to go into those small Broadway theaters where the seats are so cramped and have been that way for probably 50 or 60 years? And, yeah. uh, you, know,
0: you know, Sid, sometimes, those you know, strange things happen to have a positive effect. We at least expect that. Uh, and when you speak about the theater, which is really something close to my heart, also, I have in my apartment building. When you uh, live in an apartment in New York City, you inherit people you don't know who they are. And my vertical neighbors, Jay Sanders, are very important. Too profound. Highly mean, regarded Shakespearean actors, theater actors. And the are uh, just the extraordinary people. So they recently did something like what we're doing. It was their way of bringing the theater to hundreds of thousands of people. Because they were the first performers that did a play through the uh, internet. Like we're looking at each other now through the Zoom, so to speak. And they had four of their colleagues, about a group of five, all in their homes. And it was sponsored by the Public Theater, which you probably know about. The Public Theater Hamilton started in the Public Theater. And Jay and Marianne have performed many, many times, as well as the Shakespeare and the opera, you know, the part So they performed a play written by Richard Nelson, and he had written a number of plays which were really, really unusual, sort of like conversations about current events and things of like that nature. called the Apple Family, a series of plays. And this was scheduled to be opened. Uh, with Jay and Marianne in the two or the five actors at the public theater, and it couldn't happen because of the virus. So what they did is they did it from their homes. So instead of opening night being performed for 300 people at the public theater, 80,000 people saw this. So there's one example where, and they're doing more of this, uh, where there's outreach now uh, in the cultural world, which we never had before. With the ballet, with concerts, people are being exposed to it. They never, they don't see the theater because of the faculty just don't get up and go to these venues. Uh, but now people are in need of having exposure to the arts more so than perhaps ever before. So there's some positive things that happened, curiously. I do want to see the live theater again, but it's limited to a handful of people. Whereas what we're doing right now is multiple to thousands of people that potentially are going to be listening to what we're talking about.
1: All right. That's a really interesting perspective, actually, because the people that have been among the most positive, I think, and have helped society the most, of course, the first line responders goes without saying, but the arts community would be next in the way you're describing. And we've watched many streaming events from all over the world, and it's been powerful. And so, as you say, there's an exposure to something that people never would have gone to. I mean, it's 200 bucks for a seat in Broadway, and not everyone can afford that. But now they could see something. It's yeah. really
0: great. Yeah, we never would have had that,
1: ironically, if
0: not for this suffering we had in Yeah.
1: So, you've had some very interesting cases and interesting scenarios, and I think one of them was uh, one of the Gaudis, his brother, Peter, who is, you know, in quotes, well-known mafia figure in the New York area. I have to ask you what that was like to be the judge for such a—I mean, that's not just high profile, but I can imagine you could be a little nervous about a thing like that because of the reputation.
0: Man. Well, that's the jerk reaction people have. Actually, uh, we don't feel the mafia at all. Uh, of course, anything can happen. Just look at Judge Salas, my uh, my colleague, Judge uh, left uh, Chicago. we had five of my colleagues who've been assassinated. Not exactly risk-free type of sad to say, we're very vulnerable, you make a case, somebody's a loser, and you don't know who that person is. But getting back to the uh, pointed question of the guidance, I've been doing this for 25 years, and you evolve, of course, if you'd say the same way, you know, you know, there's something wrong with you. We all have a fair share of what we call, for lack of a better expression, high-profile cases, right? So certainly the mafia is, of course, everybody's fine, right? And that's always going to be a high-profile case. And they're assigned by random. I mean, uh, there's a filing in the folks' office, and we have 20, 25 judges now. And we were, I drew the black bead there many years ago, it's one of the only cases I had. So there's a rich history to it that everybody knows about. It. I can be in Greece, talk about the Gotti case, and everybody knows about it, right? But sometimes, you know, the perception that people have doesn't track reality. So the reality in that case, even though it was high profile, it was three weeks, that lent itself to a lot of stories, and I wrote about it in my books, and it's great, sport, right? But the reality is that the law was not that difficult. We uh, basically, you know, statutes that were dealing with repo and money laundering and things of that nature, we all know that, and we just applying it to a different set of facts. And so it's not a hard case to handle in, the, in terms of legal complexity, you might say, right? it certainly was entertaining. It certainly was something because it's in the paper every day, and there you are. People, you know, will know the cases, but they usually will not know who the judge was. People don't know who the judge was. On the John Gotti case, my colleague, God bless him, uh, Judge Glass, who's 96, my next-door neighbor of the courthouse. So the history of how that one came to me is that because we in Brooklyn basically are home to mafia trials. Why is that? Because the venue. You see. And the mafia, they usually they live in Howard Beach, which is in Queens, which is part of our venue, Eastern District of New York. And they bury people, in the, wherever they bury people, and they live in Staten Island after a while. So that's all Eastern District of New York. So those cases come to us because that's where they really, uh, is the of all of the activity. So we get the mafia cases. Yeah, the certain district may get some. I mean, it's not an absolute correlation, but essentially we deal with the population. So John Gotti got convicted and kept on dying. the uh, assistant year's attorney who was the finally who got convicted, John Greason became the judge of the same time. I did he got rewarded and he got on the bench mm-hmm. at the same time. And then he eventually died in jail. So when he died, somebody had to take over the game. but you know, family. Well, Peter's the older brother. And he really wasn't very really interested in doing that. He was a sanitation worker, kind of a jovial, pleasant guy, not a violent guy, but somebody had to take over the family business. And so there's, there's, the was designated the person to do that. That became a ticket to spend the rest of his life in jail once you become the head of a crime family, uh, RICO statute, the Racketeering Influence Act, a PAC, is here to put you in jail because you become responsible for all the misdeeds of the people who are part of your family, so to speak, part of that, you know, legal enterprise. So once you are found to be the head of an enterprise, like mocking family, the Gambino family, you're going to be responsible for the crimes that all those other people are being charged and convicted of. So he spends the rest of his life in jail now because of that. I have the color mafiosi case. Mm-hmm. I thought I was finished with the Gambino's, but lo and behold, there's been a recent invite. Mm-hmm. The head of the Gambino was uh, shot in Staten Island a few months ago. It wasn't a gangland slaying. It's uh, how some young fellow had some grief with the Gambino family, and they had to get a new person. Uh, and the new person now is under the back of several other people. But basically the same extortion cases, money laundering, influencing. Not a lot of crimes of violence now, extortions, their main bag, and just making money. So there's been a shift in the dynamics of these mafias. So we don't think that the mafia is a real threat right now. We have bigger fish to fly. You had the Colombians. My colleague, Judge Colgan, who succeeded me as a judge when I took senior status at the El Chapo trial. And there's been another indictment down in Mexico where there's number two man. He's going to be that I got that case. So, yeah, the beat goes on. You know, those folks are not as deferential to the judges. The mafia has this concept of respect mm-hmm. and authority. So they look at churches as authority figures and we don't even feel that we're in fear, but the public generally thinks that we're endangered by that. So I hope I don't get shot after making these statements now.
1: Yeah. No, no, no. I hope not for sure. But I understand you've met coincidentally some people from the family and that they were very respectful to you afterwards just because yeah, you, you did your job. You know, I
0: have a condo in Florida and the uh, retired mafiosi know Florida. Some of them are wealthy enough to have a condo also and actually have more money than I have probably. So I've met a bunch of people here who are retired mafiosi. Actually, Paul poor I think his nephew was in the kind of building that I'm in. And they're very nice people, they're very respectful, they get a good kick out of it. It's a lot of funny games. But they found out that Judge Block is there. They know that I am there mm-hmm. because they follow the Gangland News, which is this blog that Jerry Capici writes, and they all subscribe to the Gangland News. And there I am. My face is there when the new Mafiosa case came my way, right? So uh, I have a lot of funny stories. I'll just tell one because we can go on and on and on, but this last New Year's Eve, I was at a local restaurant and at 12 o'clock, uh, I'm walking out and the owner says, you know, that person sitting back to the table. He says, he knows you. I said, how does he know me? I don't know him. He says, he was, he was in your courtroom. You sent his uncle to jail. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's interesting how you can bump into in your line of business. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so so far so good, but who knows? I mean, I've had three death threats, nothing recently, but we are certainly concerned about what happened with our colleagues at South because, you know, we pay a big price for being exposed. And as she points out now that, uh, you know, everybody can find out where we live, our telephone numbers, you know, with the public figures, we have very little privacy. And uh, unfortunately to lead these of situations. You did to see an effort being made, I don't know how successful it would be to sort of give judges a little bit more privacy now and even not let their numbers or their homes be available generally to the public. There's so much tension and hatred in that country these days that I think it just makes it a little more challenging to be a judge and to raise a family, but hopefully feel is that will be that because you're a judge, which unfortunately yeah. is every situation. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. You know, there's another case that I, I know you're asked about a lot, but it's just such an interesting one, and I guess you've been also criticized for that. And it's back in 2016 when you ordered a sentence of one, I think, one year probation rather than what the guideline was for sentencing, which would have been something like 3 years in prison for a defendant convicted by a jury of importing and possession cocaine with an intent to distribute. That's the USA versus Nesbitt case. Could you share a little bit about you talked about this idea of collateral consequences? which I think is really interesting and important to talk about. Cause yeah, you share the issue there?
0: Yeah, I've written a bunch of books now. I've got a pretty interesting one I'm talking about right now, but they're all based upon the real-life experiences I've had as a judge. They're not all academic books either, but uh, I can talk about that, of course. I'd like to talk about that. But in this particular situation, one of the things I write about, in the other books I wrote, is uh, how coincidental things are, how a judge... The music the judge lists through the books the judge reads could impact, you know, what the judge does in the real world, the, the, the human being, the mix of sitting on the bench. So I read The New Jim Crow a couple of years ago, and it's a real profound polemic by Marjorie Alexander, who now I think is a professor someplace. And she was talking about the fact that we have these collateral consequences after somebody serves their term of imprisonment, then they're set free, so to speak, to go back into society. Yes, but not really, because there are all these other conditions that they have to experience after they've served their time that really keep them in prison as the practical of the matter. Uh, and she calls, calls that the new Jim Crow. And of course, you know, a large percentage of the prison population are African Americans. So she writes about the fact that they're still in the prison. They're still in They're not free. And so, I never really thought about that before. But the ABA had done a recent study which I watched into, and wow, it just really flipped me around because you have 50 states. Each has their own laws about uh, what a person who is released from jail can do, he cannot do, can't vote for a number of years, can't have driver's license for a period of time, can't get food stamps, can't get public housing, and on and on and on. So these are, can't get a teacher's license. Mm-hmm. So these are what we call collateral consequences. And of course, what it is, is that if you plow these things on people who are trying to be reintroduced to society, no surprise that we have 80% of these citizens we really, fine. Right? So it's a serious type of criminal justice issue that we have. So the research that I had done and my folks had done really produced the astounding the statistics that throughout our country we have over 50,000 of these collateral consequences, averaging roughly 1,000 a state, about 175 just in the federal system alone. So here comes Cheryl Nesbitt. I just finished with in the book. We talk about the circumstances of life. We just have to accept it. life is just circumstantial in many respect, right? And uh, she's the prototypical John helicopter. She went down to Jamaica to visit her father who lived in Jamaica with a boyfriend who uh, sort of, you know, got her to bring back some drugs in the suitcase. We get a lot of these cases because we have jurisdiction over JFK. So Customs picks up a lot of people being drugs in the country. They come for our court. We get a lot of these cases, right? And the uh, typical courier cases, usually, you know, they are guilty. They plead guilty. Or in this case, she went to trial. We found guilty. The sentencing range can be two years, three years, whatever. You have discretion to sentence a little lower than that, whatever. You look at the individual circumstances of the person that you have to pass judgment past judge So she wanted to go to trial, and uh, she was guilty of sin, but she had the right to go to trial. She just couldn't be guilty. She was 20, 21 years old, uh, was university in Connecticut, having an outstanding academic record. Uh, had a perfectly clean background, charming person, a model citizen, you might know, say. In every respect, she had a bad headache. And now she's charged with a serious felony looking at a couple of years in jail. So she was found guilty a property, so. and appropriately so. Then I had a sentence. So. And that's when I happened to read, you know, the new Crow. And I had done my research about these collateral consequences. So I really asked the government and the defense lawyer, and I never really felt it, as I said. And the probation department. What collateral consequences faced. Sherry and that's what said are Well, she's not going to be a teacher anymore. She wants to be a principal. She's not going to be able to have a houses. She's not going to get a student loan debt. Okay? And I said, wow, you know, she could drive for a while. I and mean, The first thing you want to do is be able to drive to work if you're not living in a, in a uh, big city. She's going to be up against it all. So I just, you know, I used that as the catalyst to really delve into the issue. I made the government tell me about the collateral consequences and address the issue. And I made the defense lawyer come up and tell me what they thought about it all. So that gave me the motivation to write what I think may be the most important decision Mm -hmm. I rendered, because I think it has the widest impact on human lives and our justice system. So I didn't send it to jail, I gave it probation. Uh, and uh, so, you know, uh, I was criticized by that by some newspapers in a very serious way. If I was in a federal court judge and did not have a lifetime appointment, i could probably be looking for a new job. I'd mean, be applying a job in Dartmouth if they would let me come up here. I was really uh, got a lot of positive feedback from even the Conservative Heritage Society, you know, supported it. Just because you're a conservative doesn't mean you're blind to effective criminal justice reform. So uh, I really had, you know, wonderful, wonderful support across the larger spectrum. And I lectured uh, uh, on the West Coast, and the East Coast and all over the place. So the Nesmith case really, I think, is one of the most proud of that because I think it has this most important impact. And now all my colleagues, the probation department, I hope throughout the country, when they sentence somebody, should take into consideration the collateral consequences as a sentencing factor. And I think some jurisdictions have now embraced that. And uh, it is, should be a sentencing factor when you consider, when you sentence somebody, the seriousness of the crime on the one hand, uh, and notice that against the personal characteristics of the defendant who you're sentencing. You balance all that out. We call those 3553A factors. And part of that should be the collateral consequences. that somebody they have to experience. So I think it adds a human dimension to the law, which I'm very much, you know, a favour of. Well, obviously, I think it's mm-hmm. actually concepts of justice and fairness. So if you ask me which is the most important case, I think I would probably say that. Well, of course, the body case is a sexy case, and it's all sorts of, you know, uh, and stuff like that. We had the Sapero City and I Court thinking about a time, right? Uh, but that personally was the most important case because the. impact you know, I the to me is more profound, and I feel pretty good about that. But it's all circumstance. I drew
1: the case. I read the book and there I was. But, you know, when you say it's all circumstance, I understand completely what you're talking about. But that doesn't give a lot of comfort, does it? Because it could have been another judge. It could have been you and you had not read or even been aware of that whole concept. And you may have done something different with your sentencing.
0: Absolutely correct. So what else to do in the world? We're going to have an open set of human beings. I mean, my gosh. Uh, you know, we have. I get under having make the calculation: thirty thousand innocent people in jail. There's a lot of people who should be in jail, are not in jail, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know, what are we going to do? We want to go back to that We're going to get decisions that will really reflect the current the condition and the circumstances of life. I think you know you have to accept that. You know, instead of questioning it, I mean, it's just exactly the way it is. That's what I'm talking about.
1: When a kid says, "Hey, that's not fair." Every parent has heard it, and you say, well, life is not fair. You usually say what you really want to say. Sometimes you try to soften the blow, but eventually you say it because they keep coming back to you. But now we're talking about the judiciary, and I shouldn't be surprised by anything you just said. I've seen how people have all sorts of advantages and disadvantages. You just think about the kids, for example, students that get into these top schools. How did that ever happen? Well, they didn't choose their parents, did they? They didn't choose their genetic makeup. They didn't choose the opportunity to grow up in an area that gives them a lot of advantages. And today, meaning during COVID crisis and schools reopening and closing, it's a very, very big factor because there's a lot of kids that have been studying on Zoom or or elsewhere that are not studying and not learning anything, let let alone getting a meal. So fairness is the least of it.
0: It's something that's profoundly concerning me, and actually you, and a lot of other people, because you know education is the key to so much. Right? When I see these young five children coming to court and over and over again, it's still some of these bad neighborhoods where they live and they gain their comfort level by doing bad things in these neighborhoods. It's education. And when I see the women, you know, uh, some of these fellows have four or five kids from the time to twenty five or four or five different mm-hmm. women, it's education. Uh, when you talk about the judiciary, what you can do, you can't make uniformity in terms of people making the same decisions coming from different socioeconomic dynamics. But what you can do is try to give them the best education. I think when you come to the federal judicial system, these are people that had, for whatever reason, however came to pass, the best education. And that's why I think we have a pretty sound federal judicial system correlated to merit, probably correlated to being well-educated correlated kind of to having a good sense of judgment, a good moral compass, and all those good things. You need that That's the qua mind of our society to cast an intelligent ballot for an election. You have that intelligence. You have to understand uh, things uh, on an intellectual level, and not just on an emotional level, which is not really something that aids in good judgment. If a judge acts emotionally, she or he is not acting wisely, and not exercising good judgment. Well, how do you do that? You just hope that we have better educational opportunities. And I worry about the fact that with the virus, we may slide back in terms of what we have to do with educate people. You know, I always like to point out for example, of lack of education. We have this issue about robotic care about you know, healthcare and all that sort of stuff became politicized like almost everything else of, in our society. And I ask people, what do you think of Obamacare? I hate it. What do you think about the Affordable Health Care Act? Well, that's good. It's the same law. And there's so many other examples of that that you can try it out that all come back to the lack of education and people acting emotionally, actively, rather than reflectively. So what can I say? I'm sure Dartmouth has nothing but good Intelligent, well-educated, reflected people with good judgment.
1: Well, that's a nice thing to say, and I'm not going to contradict you on that. Um, <laughs> but we won't examine the evidence, will we? No. <laughs> so you remind me of something. I think when Justice Sotomayor was, I guess, in her Senate confirmation hearings, one of the things she said—I'm going to kind of botch the paraphrase—but the basic idea was that her life experience was relevant in her job as a justice. Yeah. and that you couldn't ignore that. I mean,
0: and you know, the fact that you have a backpedal to become the judge is unfortunate. You're absolutely correct. You can't avoid your life experiences. I can't take myself out of Brooklyn or New York. I come from Texas. I mean, if I came from Texas, I wouldn't be the same. I mean, I don't think, right? And your life experiences do shape. The fact that you may be somebody who reads books, like I read, a you should go, it's your life experience. It's gonna shape how you think and how you feel. But I think that the only thing you can out for is that the people who are passing judgment on other people have a, sort of a heightened consciousness and awareness of responsibility that goes along with that. I think it was Camus who once said that, you know, if you divide the world into two parts, those who judge and those who are being judged, right? Uh, so it's a serious type of thing. I really think that my colleagues, I think to only exception, really take it seriously, maybe too seriously try to get them to laugh at but sometimes that's not so easy to do. So, you know, there's no easy answer you know that, right? The questions are probably more important than the answers, and to
1: hope you that know, you have a sound, moral, and mental compass just great when you come back. Now, Judge, what, what do you like best about being a judge? Well, talking to you is pretty cool. <laughs> Thank you. I, I'm sure that's at the top of the list, but after that.
0: <laughs> I think what I find is that it gives me access in ways which I would not have otherwise had. Mm-hmm. One of the wonderful things about doing this say the 25 years, they feel freed up. People say, well, you know, I don't care, and the judge will hear here for life and stuff like that. Well, I don't subscribe to that. because psychologically, a lot of times, uh, subconsciously, people have the gender seat the judge. They want to get on this committee. The district court judge, they want to get on the circuit court. They want to be in the Supreme Court, right? They yeah, that all the time. And you reach a certain age where you're freed up. I'm not going any place now. So in a way I feel emotionally freer than I've ever felt in my life. And I think it makes for better judgments that I make. And I think it makes for a better sensitivity about things which I should reach out and talk about and write about now. I've got a lot of judge. And I feel that uh, you this sense of relevancy at my age, I tell people what I do, and they uh, look at me as if I come from Mars. <laughs> uh, <laughs>
1: As a reminder, so you're 86, I believe. 86, yeah. 86. So this is like 20 years after a common retirement age, and you're going strong. And everyone listening to us could see that you know you're on top of your game. So, is the guy qualified to be a candidate for president of the United States at my age? Well, I could think of some worse candidates. So yeah, I wouldn't be upset. But I mean, what do you think about retirement? Are you ever going to retire?
0: Well, you know, we don't use the word. I tell people, like really, I retired 25 years ago. I don't have to do this. We call it a responsibility, not a job. There are some judges that leave the bench, a lot of times economic reasons, but most stay until the end. I have colleagues in their 90s, Judge Judge Weinstein, who's a legendary judge, is going to be celebrating hopefully his 99th birthday in a week or two. Judge Glass, who I mentioned, is 96. There are some things you have to be sensitive to because the age does have its place. If you're uh, at the point where you can't do the job or should do the job, how do you know that? It's incumbent upon us to really do that and be responsible human beings. It's uh, a real challenge that we have to go when it is to sort of hand up the gavel. And I can talk to you about stories about that, but you know, uh, I think we have some time constraints here. So I don't know when I should leave your law clerks are not going to tell you your friends by large are not going to tell you so you have to look within yourself hopefully have some good colleagues and uh, no one to but I think that in my situation I joke about the fact that I write books and I got another one I'm writing right now which I think is pretty good I've got a lot of things happening in the theater world too so I feel if I can write a book like it's good reviews, I guess I'm not so I was buying to in again you know, so I think I can do it still but Maybe I think about it because you're not quite the same as you are, but maybe in some respects you're better. Maybe your judgment is better. It's a mixed bag. So I think I'm okay, and I hope that this interview will validate that. Keep my this for us.
1: So, you know, I think as people get older, not always, but often they do become wiser. You used the word wise before. Just because you're 60 or 80 doesn't mean you're automatically wise. But the odds are that if you are at least a bit introspective and paying attention to what's around you and some self-awareness and love to learn, you will become much wiser.
0: That's true. I think that happened with just the same thing. You'll have to leave the traps. We came on the bench about the same time. She had the second district. I sort of told to buying her condo. We lived in the same neighborhood. We used to have a new this once or twice. And, uh, you know, I had a laugh. I said, Sunday, you know, uh, you have been to go places. You know, I'm not going to go places, right? Sure enough. And then I always joke to say that, you know, you're getting along with the truth when one of your good friends becomes the United States Supreme Court
1: justice. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's a good selection of friends. So we're almost out of time. I like to ask a question I ask pretty much every guest about advice. And I'm sure you've been asked about giving advice to different groups you've spoken to. But this advice is a little different in that it's advice to yourself. And if you could go back in time, and I guess in your case, we we're going to go back a number of decades to when you were 21 years old. If you could find the 21-year-old, and now I'll say Fred Block, because you were in a justice then, and you kind of cozy up next to him and say, you know, Fred, there's one thing you want to know, if there's one thing you want to think about, there's one thing you want to watch out for, there's one piece of advice I have for you, this is it. What would that be, advice to yourself as a young man?
0: Well, you know, I think that I was a bit insecure, uh, more so than, than now. You know, there were family reasons for that. My father was sort of an orphan, and we never had a lot of adults into my home. I never felt comfortable uh, in the company of adults. And I think that that held me back from reaching out to having the broader upbringing, so to speak. But I learned uh, later on something which I think that I, I wish I had that awareness when I was 21. To run the risk of rejection, to be secure enough with yourself. So that if you uh, are rejected, if you're willing to run those risks, you're going to be successful and not be fearful. Somehow, I don't know why I feel very lucky about the fact that I'm willing to be a risk-taker. So I think that that's some advice I would have given myself early on, to be a little bit more secure with yourself, and to uh, have more faith in your judgment, to be a bit of a risk-taker. And I tell people when I do lecture, like, and I'm invited to speak to lots of groups here and there, I use the uh, analogy of a stone thrower who tosses a stone in the middle of a pond, the of a pond, and uh, you don't know uh, what the ripples are going to be, but there will be ripples, you don't know how many, you don't know the dimension, you don't know what's going to happen, but if you didn't throw that stone in the water, you would not have the same kind of life experiences exposures and opportunities to really live a like quality life mm-hmm. and to feel good about yourself. So I'm a big stone thrower, and I like to do those types of things. Mm-hmm. And I'm able to do that now because I feel a lot more secure uh, now, hopefully, uh, over these years. So at the age of 21, I would like to have uh, told myself that. Don't feel so insecure. Don't feel inadequate. Don't worry about other people's opinions so much and try to develop a, a little bit of a better sense of self-confidence. That sounds a little bit too philosophical, maybe, but I think that's...
1: No, that's, I think that's excellent advice. And you know, you're making me think, do you think that because you maybe weren't as confident as you ended up becoming as a young man, that that's one of the things that drove you to do some of these other things? I mean, writing books, long, successful career as an attorney, and then another long, successful career as a judge, and many other adventures over the years. Are they connected? Yeah,
0: but they're intangibles. I mean, your DNA is what it is. I sort of had a contrarian view of things. I, you know, would question things and think this was right. And there was something within me that wanted to sort of be relevant about these things. So I had that engine, that like, motivated me. And it sort of clashed with the fact that I felt insecure. But over the years, you know, when I saw something that troubled me, I got to be courageous I think that really I feel pretty good about the way I turned out. A lot of luck. who knows? I mean, you know, the DNA, how much can we determine our lives? I don't know. We can make some deterministic decisions, but a lot of them, I guess, is pure data. I don't know what the right composition is. But, yeah, opportunities strike you. see them have the courage to go forward with it. I can tell stories on and on. Of course, after 25 years of the book, I can do it forever, right? So, you know, the touchstone of my career, when I think about it, happened when I just started practicing law and I had no clients. I just walking into the office, you know, uh, uh, the collection cases, whatever it was. Somehow, I, there I was. And as I was working for a small law firm out in Suffolk County, I went out there. And I don't have to worry with how I got out there, but I uh, was exposed to uh, thinking about the law. And I realized that, you know, I wasn't doing a lot of profound things. And uh, we uh, had the opportunity to bring a lawsuit. That was right after the uh, Supreme Court opened the doors to a portion of representation, and the uh, one man was called one vote, politically incorrect. It should be one person, one vote, Became came the order of the day. And I started, and I paid a complaint, challenging the former governor of Suffolk County and stopped being reflective of principles of equal representation. I'm going to argue that case, and its the Supreme Court. And they never made a penny on it. So why do they do that? Well, I wanted to do something. I didn't feel relevant. I didn't feel good about myself just doing collection cases. I had to do it. I had to start someplace. But I really always had a couple of these little things in my head that I did that were not money makers. And I think that's what probably impressed someone in 30, 40 years later.
1: And that's what you're recalling now. It's just a story in itself, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's all in the books I've written. Yeah. Judge Frederick Block, thanks so much for being on the SITCAST, sharing just a little bit of the story. There's so many other stories that uh, we could get into if we had another hour to go.
0: It's just a pleasure to be with you. I look forward to seeing you again many, many times. Hope you will
1: come to Paris. Thank you for listening to the SITCAST. I am really excited to be bringing you Season 2 and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or you can email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sitcast is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.